Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking sophomore slump. Those bands that got it right the first time and never again. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook for more info. Now let's get to the sophomore slump. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. In today's episode, we are concentrating on the sophomore slump and the sophomore surge. Sophomore slump is a sort of uh, widely regarded or, or widely uh, held belief that some bands just have one one out, one great album in them, and then the fall off a cliff, which has been uh, um, proven by, by a number of the bands on our list today. And then there's a sophomore surge, which is... Uh, uh, our optimistic view uh, of bands that came out with one record and then really made the leap to to what they were supposed to sound like on album number two. So I'm going to open it up. Uh, Jeremy and Christian are both here today, uh, and I had I had broken up the sophomore slump uh, section of the podcast uh, into a, a series of uh, categories. The first of which was uh, a great first album followed by a lesser version of the same album. Basically, bands. Um, there seemed to be a, a, a rash of this in the in the early 2000s, particularly a band that puts out one great record and uh, then just keeps putting out the same record, but in uh, in sort of varying degrees of of uh, suckitude later. My uh, the first band on the list, which I hate to say, because uh, but I guess it's the case in all of these with all of these because um, I love the first album is uh, Sun Volt. Um, you know, you got Jay Farrar and, and Jeff Tweedy. Um, this is actually a really interesting case because I would I would say that one went one direction, one went the other. When uh, if you can remember back to 1995, when uh, Uncle Tupelo had split up, Jay Farrar went on to start Sun Volt, and the first album Trace was phenomenal. Um, and Jeff Tweedy went on to uh, start up Wilco, and their first album was. It was good. Lackluster. It was yeah, but I would say fairly lackluster. It was a it was a classic two and a half star album with a couple of fun songs on it uh, that have become more fun live versions later. But you know, we thought. I mean, I was Team Sun Volt all the way. I thought, oh well, there, that's where the that's where the genius of Uncle Tupelo came from, uh, and it certainly went with. I think most people did. He was the critical darling of Uncle of uh, Uncle Tupelo as well. So there was a lot of anticipation, and he delivered. It's a it's a great album. It's a classic album, really. And, yeah. uh, and they made the same album. I think maybe who knows how many of them are out there at this point. But well, I figured he keeps making the same album. It's was a classic. Was it really acrimonious split, or was that something that I mean? I I'd always sort of thought that it. Was. No, it was a it was a pretty uh, contentious split. I think uh, in. Uncle Tupelo, who was a band I'll admit I got into kind of later. I, I discovered them sort of through Sunvolt, but um, they were together. They kind of shared song uh, writing and singing um, credits, you know, kind of traded off. And I think Jay Ferrara at the time was kind of the more mature sort of songwriter and then had these really kind of haunting country 
ballads and country rock songs, and I think the critical press, you know, looked at it as him as sort of the the leader of that movement. And uh, you know, he said, "I'm done. I don't really need this other guy." And kicked Jeff Tweedy out of the band. And, and um, Jeff Tweedy actually ended up Wilco ended up keeping the, the band, the rest of the people, but he went off and, and formed Sunbolt. But yeah, I think he was a pretty angry. They were pretty angry at each other for a long time. They may still be. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, they, I think they grew up together. Um, I think they started. I think uh, Uncle Tupelo was was the uh, outcropping of a high school band uh, that was doing covers, and uh, you know, like like we said, Jay Farrar was you know he came out of the box. He's the class. This the Sunvolt's a classic example of a band that if you were giving numerical ratings, which I'm trying not to do post election. Um, if you were giving numerical rating, you know, he sort of kicked off with a 10 and then it was like, oh, and seven and then a five and then a five and then a five. Um, you know, he just sort of kept putting out the same record over and over again. And I guess part of it is the fact that, you know, he has a really strong voice, um, but it's so it's it's never changes. It's uh, it's so steady. And, um, you know, you run out of. Uh, variations on on the sound that he can make with that voice and and that sound um it's sort of if you slightly upper tempo versus mid tempo and that's really the changes you you see after after the first record i would go just getting uh in the interest of time getting down the list because i think jared and i could talk about sunvolt and wilco for about an hour and a half um you guys are doing it yeah so uh the next one up was Interpol, who just blasted yeah. out again the best album, one of the best albums maybe ever. I love it. I know Christian is a massive fan. Uh, yeah. We all are, but um, I, I really do feel like you know there was so much anticipation around the second album, and they're they're another classic example of a band you know the that suffers from the adage of you know you have your entire life to make your first album and you have six months to make your second. But you know, when, it's also for me. I have to say, like this was definitely something. Jeremy is it, but uh, you know this is also a great example of I think the first time I remember feeling like an album was really mine, um, and it was something that was sort of very personal, and, and you know I I just absolutely loved uh, Turn on the Bright Lights, and then when Antics rolled around, and of course you know this is also um, drummed up I think by the politics of being fifteen years old or fourteen mm-hmm. I guess whatever it was, yeah that's Antics a, that's rolls a... around and everybody else likes it. And I sort of thought, you know, oh, well, you know, you I, went I, around. I loved this stuff before you knew about it, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And so I think it was really compounded by the sort of social dynamics as well, like, which is pretty funny. Well, it's also, you know, compounded by the fact that the second album just isn't that good. It's got a great single. And then, you know, the rest of it was sort of, you know, you, yeah. you, you don't get the impression. Slow hands that, and evil. Uh, yeah. And I wasn't even that big of a slow hand fan. Come evil here. I loved. Um but, you know, to me, it was, I, I felt like none of the songs, I felt like one of the songs on the second album could have made it on the first album. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty did steep decline for a band that has well, that much promise. Very different production value, I thought. But, that too. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have to think, you know, I, I have to check my, you know, this is where I have to check myself being, I, th- I think I was 32 when it came out or so, um, you know, where you were. 13 and um that's a pretty dark 13 year old <laughs> listening sitting by himself listening to interval <laughs> yeah well <laughs> otherwise known as friendless um uh, another one the exact same era same you know and it, i felt like we were plagued by this for like a two-year period where you know and the, so the you know the third one on my list is the strokes um you know which 
arguably the second album, uh, you know, is pretty good. I, I mean, it is really good. Room on Fire is a good record, but they did put out, you know, the Strokes, Is This It? And then the Strokes, Is This It? Part two called Room on Fire. So there was no, yeah. there was no growth. It was like a double album that, that was separated by months. Rather yeah, it than, almost sounded like, you know, they picked up the scraps of great songs on the floor that they cut out of the first album and stitched it together for the second. And yeah, think, is, is this it, like, you know, the, the stuff that didn't make the final cut? Is, is totally what it felt like to me. But. Is I this love, it again? I love Fire. I think it's a great album. Uh, and I, I kind of think it sometimes sounds fresher to me than, than the first one, but it does totally fall into that. You're just sort of disappointed. I think one thing, too, that's kind of interesting on both these albums I believe I was maybe like 25 when they came out was the it was still you were anticipating albums you know where I think you, you do to a sense now but you hear everything leaked and you hear stuff on the internet or you preview a song I mean I, I, I had you know the Interpol on CD and I'm sure you guys did too as well as the Strokes you know and mm-hmm. I was yep. you, you, you were really excited for that next perfect album and, uh, you know. Oh, that's a great, no, it's a great point. And this is something I was totally, I was thinking about last year because, um, you know, I, I mean, I remember, like, the anticipation that we get you. It was, like, albums for whatever reason, I don't know if this was true when you guys were kids, but for me, they were, they were always released on Tuesdays. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there was some logic to this, which is you are at work slash school slash whatever and not paying attention to other stuff. You're not out, you know, it's like how, it's like how the big networks on television, like, you don't put your stuff on on a Friday night if it's your best show, right? You put it on on a Wednesday. Or well, Thursday not only night. that, but you have um, a fall release schedule, and you have, you know, I mean, that's, they, yeah. you know, there were and times I mean, of year, too. There, there was, obviously, this was one of these things that, like, the industry studied very carefully. Um, what's interesting, though, is that all of a sudden last year, I remember reading an article that, you know, that had sort of announced that global album release day would now be on Friday. Um, and it's completely something that was dictated by music streaming, obviously, which mm-hmm. is that you're sort of getting ready for the weekend. You want to throw stuff on playlists. Um, you're obviously, you, you're home or you're on your phone or you're on your computer all the time. So it doesn't, it, you know, it just doesn't matter. You don't Arbitrary. have to go to a record store after school. Yeah. So. I actually think, I, I think the Tuesday release date had more to do with uh, the cycle of getting press over the weekend and then having people um, buy things during the, you know, during the week and also probably dates back to something about shipping or something. But, um, yeah, you know, records being pressed only on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, due, to, due to blue laws. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, yeah, I, do, I totally remember that. I, um, but I do think, you know, the strokes, uh, you, you know, is this it, was that it, um, uh, strokes too. I do think they're both good records, and and so I feel a little bit badly putting the Strokes on here. But at the same time, I think they fall so firmly into that period that you know had Interpol and you know I think the first Pete Yorn album, which isn't by any stretch a masterpiece, but you know I really like that. Then the second one fell off, and it just seemed like there was a lot of people putting out really good records. Um, you know, well, maybe the the original version of this then was uh, a band that didn't even. Um, that didn't even bother uh, trying to come up with a name for their second album, which was the Pretenders to the Pretenders Two. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I like that's a, you know sort of a lesser version of the first one. But no, I like I love both of those albums. I was thinking about that. Uh, the third one or the fourth one on this great great first album, followed by lesser versions of the same album from the same era. Um, and I don't I don't know. Is it just that we all hit? 
that we all had like such a, a massive interest in this era, or is it is it really like a a marked marked falling off, or was this the end of the album era? So that you know these stand out, but um, you know I'll, I'll do a twofer because you brought up uh, Franz Ferdinand, who really sort of announced themselves, you know, with a very strong debut that was just like you know. It was so fully formed, and they weren't young. Um, they were very sort of articulate and good songwriters when they when they came on the scene. I felt like the second album they put out was, again, the first album outtakes, uh, just not very not as good versions of the same thing. I think that's definitely right. They were also great performers. I gotta say, I really enjoyed them. Um, I saw them on their first uh, when they were touring their first album and loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I think, I mean, it was, you know, they had such a distinctive sound that you weren't really worried about them losing that quality or that aspect of it in their second album, but the songs just weren't as good. I mean, yeah. it's that simple. There was a couple, uh, and, you know. couple gems, I will say. Uh, yeah. But I and was, they still pumped out a gem here and there, but agreed with we'll on that one. Yeah. I, 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 um, and then uh, you guys have the killers down. Um, I would disagree. Uh just because I, I found like the Killers fell into that category of bands I hate to love right off the bat. They sort of seemed like they were a put on and and um, it but, seemed like Urban Outfitters designed them. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, I at the same time I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know deny I really loved uh, their songs and their songs were so good. Oh, yeah, they're great. And I so mean, I can totally see why you would. Why you would think that based on the sound and the fact that particularly for, you know, if you were listening to music in the 80s, like it was one of the first groups that came back and really almost felt felt like deliberately revivalist. Yeah. Um, and of something like the Smith in the way that like that kind of, you know, uh, like Jet is another great example of that for a different type of sound. But I mean, they were they were so trying to do somebody else's music that it sort of seemed like didn't quite fit but I felt however, had not discovered the 80s at that point so no. I was hearing this for the first time and on top of that I would say even though yeah it immediately got like swept into the Urban Outfitters um, you know sort of Starbucks uh, soundtrack albums or whatever like I have to say they, they actually that couldn't be further from the story of that band right I mean it was right. sort of a they're, like Brandon Flowers was what he was like 21 or 22 when that album came out and of all places they're from Las Vegas and he's a Mormon like, yeah yeah, and he's a Mormon. It's like there's just nothing about it actually could have been designed. No, but it, it did. It did have that. Uh, you know, it did come out at the same time as um, you know a lot of the bands that felt like they were put together in, in a, by a focus group. You bring up Jet, or uh, you know, there was a few others. Um, you know, that just they. You know, they just had, they were just right, they were hit songs. And I felt like when the Killers came out, like all their songs sounded like hits and they were hits. And it was, you you had a hard time believing that there was an organic structure behind it, but it turns out there was. And, you know, for that, I, I feel badly. The most, more of the reason that I brought, that I questioned the Killers being on here is because I actually really like the second album. So, I was gonna say my favorite song by them might be the uh, the Bruce Springsteen slash 80s <laughs> song on that second one. Forget it, forever. When young you, when you were song. young, 
when we were young. Yeah. No, when you were young. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they had some really good songs on the second album. So, um, and my God, did I hate that song the first time I heard it? Me too. I thought it was the worst thing ever. And now it's, it's by, not by far. I like there, a lot of their there's songs. A, there's it's a, one of my favorites. Yeah, there's like a, a small, you know, small room in hell reserved for songs that mention Jesus or Elvis for me. And, uh, I, you know, that one was, you know, it's just like such a, you know, grand pronouncement in that song. And I was like, oh, I hate this. I hate this so much. This is like they're trying to rewrite Born to Run. And, you know, little by little, it grew on me. And so that's the only reason I wouldn't put the Killers on there is because I actually like their second album. I think to win and not to dwell on this because I know we got to keep moving, but it was also the period of people like getting of that genre getting big. And I think for us, we weren't used to that. We were used to the underground and, and sort of being left to the dial in the 80s and early 90s. And, and this was kind of the, you know, Interpol was a pretty big band and, and the Killers were a huge band. And, yeah. you know, there was a lot more, you know, Modest Mouse had gotten big and, the shins kind of broke everything open for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It, you like you like being the guy in your friend group who was the who was the music guy, mm-hmm. um, and you know to a certain extent, like I think this was probably a period of time when there was like a, you weren't quite sure whether you were still going to get to have that identity if like if everybody started like that. And of course, like you realize, you know, yeah, you can and whatever. It's, it, but it, it's uh, but I think you know I can I can totally imagine that. I, that was sort of what I was saying with with Interpol, like yeah. in a one off setting right um so but i i you know truly i think at that point in my life that sort of proprietary you know ownership of of a certain kind of music was was gone um that that feeling was no longer necessary i didn't begrudge anybody for getting big uh like i may have when i was a teenager um but at, at the same time it was uh there was a feeling that some of it was sort of contrived and that was yeah my, i was suspect of the band more than how people reacted to it. Yeah. You know, if it was a modest mouse who put their time in and got big, then I had a little more... I see what you're saying. ...street cred. And, you know, if somebody just came out wanting to be famous, I was like, uh, you know. Yeah. So I, I was going to turn it over to you guys for the hip-hop edition of uh, the sophomore... Uh, slump, because uh, slump it's a beatbox. Call you name some of these off. Yeah, yes, sir. yes <laughs> very much. Um, should I like to hear that? But um, yeah, I mean, all right. So to start with, I think the the first one that really sticks out. I mean, you know, in no particular order for these. Um, I've got to say uh, the score, uh, one of my all time favorite albums, and and really, I think like you know, a pretty a pretty standalone example of mixing sort of you know, R&B vocals and really great uh, hip-hop beats and, and, you know, like actual sort of MC, like lyrics and, and flow. Um, I, I don't tend to uh, tend to love the sort of, you know, R&B vocals interfering with the rap that I like, um, but I think that this really did combine them in a way that was, you know, just incredibly um, sort of beautifully musical and at the same time you know pretty it, it had sort of the the right kind of aggression that i liked it was clever um you know you really can't can't argue with the the um the songwriting uh, from from you know in particular uh, i think lauren hill so um it really set her up but i mean yeah that was a that was a big time uh, big time surge so mm-hmm. that was a big time surge I, I ironically i would put lauren Hill in the uh, in the sophomore slump, firmly in the sophomore slump category as a solo artist. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. Croswell probably falls into that category too. Yeah. I never really understand why he, why he was in the band. <laughs> I don't think anybody did. Yeah, <laughs> he, had a, he had a great voice, and he only had like they wrote him like three verses an album, and then 
uh, hey. sent them out to pasture. But Good for I him. I have a couple that probably influenced that album, and I'll do a, a slump and a surge. So the Native Tongues, who are back in the news with the recent release of Tribe Called Quest new album, which is really pretty good if you guys haven't listened to it. I think Christian, you listened to it yeah. the other day. Um, but one of my favorite all-time hip-hop albums and kind of one of my favorite albums ever, De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, when you introduced me to, completely changed, you know, at that time, it was just, there was nothing that sounded like that album. It was Prince Paul produced, you know. No, it was... It was... 60s, samples it was also coming on the heels of of public enemy so we were you know we were starting to get some really hard you know hard political um you know serious and uh, And everything else was either kind of dancey and disco-y and and, uh you know or just sort of battle rapping ll cool j but but like fun and frivolous was yeah fun and frivolous was not the hallmark of hip-hop no and then uh you know you sort of got the you know De La Soul, you know, uh, it was, they were, they had much more in common with the bands, with the rock bands that I was, you know, into at the time. They were sort of, um, you know, it was humorous, it was playful, it was funny. Um, God, I just did a Stephen A. Smith where I said the same thing three times. Um, <laughs> it would go on right after the Pixies on my, you know, on my uh, stereo often. And it was, uh, it's just a great album. And I, I, I think... To your Interpol point, I was so excited for De La Soul Dead to come out, which took a really fucking long time to come out because of the uh, sample issues that they had by the Turtles. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and it just, it, it was like the complete opposite direction. I mean, if people have gone back and revisited that album and sort of give it, I guess, whatever credit, I tried so hard to like it. It has a couple of great songs. But uh, after Three Feet Eyes Rising, it's a band that just, or a group that never really kind of recaptured the magic there's well, some good stuff but they were that was a that was a landmark case i mean that was a case that you know sort of uh derailed sampling uh for many many years yeah. to come they were successfully sued by the turtles uh flowing and and if you if you're familiar with the album um the track that they got sued for is is so mind-boggling it's the it was one like shortest sample ever wasn't it yeah it was the uh it was the strings part on the on the uh Part where they're uh, where they're doing the French lesson, and it was it was like a skit. It wasn't even really a song. Um, so you know they had like all these like high profile samples on there of you know, um, Holland Oates, Funkadelic, um, you know, uh, Schoolhouse Rock, and you know you get you get slammed for this you know three seconds of a Flo and Eddie Turtles song that uh, you know. Just derailed your career and then the second album you know I was really excited for the second album too it took several years to come out and then what it was was reflective very much reflective of the fact that they were really angry about the lawsuit and they'd just been drugged through the fucking courts yeah it was an angry angry record hence mm. the title They Lost Souls Dead also, um, also I, I mean another another great example of this from this I mean sort of the same era I guess a little little, uh, little earlier but I mean when you talk about like getting away with sampling for the last time, that always makes me think of Paul's Boutique, an oh, yeah. album that truly, under absolutely no circumstances, could have existed in, like, the modern era. Well, it's the exact um, same, it's the same, uh, same year. I mean, they're not the same year, calendar year, but they were within 12 months of each other. Yeah, and it was just such an impressive, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I don't, we've talked about sort of whether we could factor 
those first two Beasties albums into this list in any way, and I, I think we sort of agreed, like, they're both awesome for for uh, for different reasons, but, like, that's just one of those things where, you know, it's a complete anomaly. Like, that didn't happen again until, um, you know, because the lawsuits that ended up throughout the 1990s, it didn't happen again until, you know, the internet came around and people mm-hmm. started doing mashups and stuff, and you got, like, girl talk. Yeah. No, that, those are... Those are fun, and I think it is under a certain amount of time. I can't remember. I'm not going to delve into the law around it, but um, you know, like I said, it was it was you know it was also flying in the face. Of, it was a strange period because it was a very brief period, and it was you know straight out of Compton came out the same year, and everybody felt the need to get harder and you know more you know sort of get their you know street cred in in, in order, and so you know the sort of fun silly you know, album that sounded like it went to college. Uh became, Bony Loves, Jungle Brothers, yeah. also he had a real movement that was great. Yeah. Uh uh Leaders of the New School, Brand Nubian. Uh it was all really fun. And they were all guesting on each other's records. It was a real community tribe called Quest, obviously. Um but anyway it it uh needless to say, that I sort of crashed and burned in a in a way that only uh, you know, uh that kind of good time has to eventually, sadly. Well, uh, speaking of tribe, I'll quickly just throw out low end theory as a surge, and we don't have to go too in depth as we need to keep moving. But just to really start to finish, I think it's one of the best hip hop albums are hard to come by. There's always great songs, and there's a lot of probably surges, and, and I think sort of uh, great intro albums, and we'll probably go over a few more here. But as an album, that start to finish, that is. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Very minimalist. Uh, it has that great jazz groove throughout it. And again, kind of like Sticky Night Rising kind of brought a new sound to hip hop. I think Low End Theory brought a sound that's actually stayed in mm-hmm. hip hop today. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, just a really influential album. Their first album was fun too, but it, it just, you know, it had a couple great singles. But it wasn't, yeah, that had, uh, yeah, that was, that was a, a major launch. Um, the funny thing is, you know, and I would, this uh, as the reverse, um, this is another slump, um, came out the same year. Uh, I just mentioned it, NWA Straight Outta Compton, which Christian and I were talking about may have the single greatest um, declaration, first song, first side of a first album ever. I mean, there's no greater statement of purpose than Straight Outta Compton. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, it just, you know. You can just sort of drop the mic after that, literally. Um, yeah, unfortunately um, for everybody, NWA's second album uh, was the first one without Ice Cube, and to me, it was a complete waste of time. Um, and uh, we all, I think, we all know where the where you know um, the talent went. And Ice Cube's first solo record was was great. So, um, can there be anything more vindicating as an MC than to leave a group? Uh, have them like take a huge shit on you and then watch them put out the lamest album ever and then recognize that you've got all the talent and come out with no Vaseline. Like, yeah. I mean, that's got to be the best sort of like, you know, three step move to just like ultimate takedown. Except the only I, downside is their second album sold millions exactly. of copies. And I think Ice Cube's album was, you know, sort of in the ether, unfortunately. It was like a critical darling. And, and, but you know what? He, right he's, done, he's done just fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah they all have. Um, but yeah, well, you, not easy. you guys said, uh, and I'll leave this one to you guys, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Illmatic, but I never really followed Nas beyond uh, Illmatic, so hit it. 
I mean, I think, go ahead, Christian. We can both love this album together. Filmatic? Or Jam? No, I just, I mean, I, I just say we can both talk about it. It's a great album. It's, you know, makes the hair on my, the back of my neck stand up every time I hear it. It's just a, a hardcore, badass New York hip-hop album that's, I think Q-Tip actually discovered Nas, if I'm, I might be wrong there, but I think I'm right. And uh, it's just, it's a punch-you-in-the-face, badass record. <laughs> that's all you can say. Followed by pretty lame records, you know? But what happened on the second yeah. album? Because that second album didn't come out for a while, did it? No, that's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, this was this was really his debut. Uh, the, the follow-up, I mean, like, all the follow-ups kind of dragged for me. I mean, I think... You know, to set this up, like, Nas the ultimate sophomore followed by everything slump. Um, I mean, he he shot this first record, Illmatic, out of a cannon, and, you know, everything after that, it was written, I think, I Am, um, Nostradamus, and then Stillmatic in 2001, which, you know, I, like, there are a couple of good songs here and there, but at the end of the day, I mean, this sort of, this was such a defining piece of the New York sound, and even more than that, in particular, the Brooklyn sound. I mean, you got to remember, like, this was a time when, you know, Nas, Jay-Z, and Biggie all came up at the same time from the same place. I mean, if you want to talk about, like, three MCs that can get a place on a map, I mean, that's mm-hmm. pretty incredible. Um, Biggie, obviously, you know, doesn't factor into this particular uh, category, put two great albums, and that's it. But, uh, so, you know, you can't really, can't really say that there was a surge or a slump there. It was just, you know, um, well, there's to, a slump, uh, just a different version, there, variety of slumping. East Coast rap too. Sorry, Lynn, but you've had a huge West Coast shift with Dr. Dre and Snoop, and that kind of laid back. Yeah, and this was California, this was firing so, back. This was yeah. saying we can we can do gangster rap too, and you know bring it back to the sort of gritty, dark yeah, roots. And you know, like I really train. right, and I really don't think you can overlook the influence of DJ Premier on all of this stuff. I mean, it was so funny. I had this incredible sort of, like, you know, eureka moment a couple of years ago when I remember thinking, "Man, this sounds so like this is this sounds so much like this other this uh, this other song by uh, Mob Deep. That's really interesting. Um, I wonder what you know." And I sort of realized that there's this incredible like the blueprint that underpins not the album but like the actual physical musical mm-hmm. blueprint that underpins all of the rap songs that I like from the mid '90s are that those eerie little piano parts um, and, you know, dark sort of bass lines and sort of beat minimalism when it comes to, you know, snare, rim shot, and bass or something like that is just, uh, you know, it was all premier. Like, he was just all over the place. Mm. And, I mean, he's, he's such, an incre- such an incredible and such a prolific DJ. Mm. Well, yeah, who was the other half of Gangstar as well. Yeah. Yes, who Christian and I frequently fight about. Um, uh because Guru is from Boston. Um, and, uh, I don't believe that's true, anyway. Um, <laughs> we don't need to get into this right now. But that's, it's always new edition, Christian. You don't just get the claim people like that. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, uh, I have a one, one category, uh, or one, one band uh, single category for uh, the next one, which is second one stunk, but then they recovered. And I'm sure there's more of these where this came from, but uh, the clash is... Yeah, we'll is, tweet them. Tweet them to us or, uh, or post them on the website or something like that. Absolutely. But The Clash kind of stands alone in, in terms of that. It was like they put out a great first album. Second album was a, you know, uh, sort of abortion brought on by the record company. They 
were assigned Sandy Perlman as a producer from Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, they made an okay record that was kind of... I mean, if you if you are old enough to remember uh, closeout bins and record stores, there was... N- uh, there was no... There was no, no, not did the single greatest population of any record and and blowout bins was uh, give them enough rope by the Clash, uh, and then they came back obviously with London Calling. So anyway, uh, went classic, mediocre, classic, classic, classic. Um, but the the ones I wanted to uh, there was there's two categories left in the uh, sophomore slump, and it may we may have to break this with the sophomore surge may have to get its own podcast. Um, it may have to double up with um, uh, another another category we were talking about, which is uh, bands that made two great albums only. Um, but the, the next uh, one I wanted to throw out, the next category I want to throw out, was Change Direction for the Worse. And in this one, just to, uh, for the sake of, of brevity, I'm going to throw out a bunch of bands, and we can talk. You can pick the one um, that you want and talk about it. But... Uh, and I'm just going to list them. Bonnie Vare, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clap your hands and say, yeah. Block party, go team, Jesus and Mary Chain. I'm, I think we all have one here that uh, stands out to us. Mine would be Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, Psycho Candy to Darklands was such a major drop off as far as I'm concerned. And, and you know, Darklands isn't a terrible album, but Psycho Candy was such a life altering record for me when I was in high school. Um, and so to get something that, that was so dynamic, so new, so exciting and so mysterious, um, and then, um, have them completely change direction and go to a much more sort of, uh, uh, I guess, um, conventional kind of songwriting after putting out a whole album that was just feedback, um, with pop tunes, buried underneath it um, was really disappointing to me. Again, that's my Jesus and Mary chain take, change direction for the worse. Um, I know Christian had something to say about the AAS, Fever to Tell, to Show Your Bones. Big time. Um, yeah, I mean, this was, I think, you know, for, for me, the, the Fever to Tell really was the great punk album that came out uh, while I was in high school. Um, and, you know, it was, what I know now is this was this was really sort of so woven into the Lower East Side scene at that point, and, you know, these guys, Chase and, and Karen O met at, uh, met at NYU, and Nick Sinner was, uh, was you know, supporting bands locally as a guitarist, and, and that was sort of how the trio got started. Also playing, from Boston. You know, playing bars and clubs um, uh, out of New York with them. Yes. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, the, they, they sort of they hit big, obviously, with this album. And Maps, in particular, was the single that just like you know blew it out of the water. And then you had follow-on from Y Control Pin. Um, but you know, I think uh, from there there was sort of a, a kind of long wait, I'd say. Um, and you know, a couple of years later, you ended up with, with Show Your Bones. Um, and this, to me, was just like it just wasn't the band that I knew anymore. Um, and you know, it didn't have that sort of raw um, sort of punk aggression and. and you know, not that it necessarily needs to. Um, I think there was a, a little bit of sort of discussion about whether this was the band growing up or whether this was sort of these guys losing interest in sort of where, what they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, and, you, I would... know, you realize it was part of a big move out to L.A. for them. And I think what, the funny part to me, though, is, I, you know, on their first EP, they had a song called Archstar, which is basically all about... Um, 
you know, the, the sort of super chic, fashionable um, world of becoming, you know, the really cool person uh, in a subculture or whatever and still losing touch with, with where you came from, which is exactly what happened to them two albums later. So, I, you know, it's sort of... Uh, it's called it's presa- funny, uh, presaging your own demise. Yeah, uh, exactly. I think... Uh, I would, I would, yeah, I think this, you know, this is probably going to, I'm going to change this and, and just refer to it as the Amy Schumer corollary. Um, <laughs> but moving, yeah, moving to LA can really, uh, can really rob some people of, of what made them good. Um, and, but not you, Wyndham. No, not me. Um, it just, rob, it just robs, awesome. robs me of my soul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like all great things, it has roots in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say mine would be uh, on this list, Bon Iver, uh, a.k.a. Justin Vernon. I, I, like a few people I know, have come to, came to that album. My, you know, my first kid was born. It was a really, really rough time for me and my wife. And uh, we lived in Chicago. It was freezing. And like I just listened to this album, the first one, uh, for a grandma, over and over again. And, and it, I still find that it's like, it's one of those unique albums where, you know, I don't think you could do that again, right? The guy was shut up in a cabin and, you know, just started to try different sounds with his voice and <clears throat> different guitar tunings. He had been in a band prior, you know, literally recorded that album by himself alone with a few little help on a couple songs. And, um, but it just, every song to me is, is kind of magical on that album. There's, there's a couple, like, handful of five albums that if I can't think of anything to listen to, if I'm on a plane or I'm, you know, working or I'm just hanging out, like, I can put on and I'm never sick of them, and that's yeah. one of them. I call them the, my, and, uh, the, my writing albums. So no, those are my writing albums. I just, I'll flip them, you know, it's just my default. Like, I can, I can... I can get I can listen to this album really intently and love it, and I can also flip it on, and I know it so well that it can become wallpaper, and I can actually work through it. Totally, yeah. I can hear the songs individually. Stacks, Skinny Love. I mean, I love them on that's their my, own. That's my. That's that's funny. I don't. We've never actually talked about this. I have a. Yeah, I've got a playlist called for you know lack of original stuff, but called uh, Happy Album Time, which is exactly that. It's the ten, maybe twelve, that are just like. On permanent rotation for when I can't think of anything else. Yep. Yeah, it's those times like I don't want to listen to anything, but I can listen to this. That's it. Okay. I'm, I'm not feeling creative or adventurous. I'm feeling it's like comfort food. Mm-hmm. And there, and there, we just birthed another podcast, um, which will. Um, <laughs> so, following up on that, you know, again, like I said, I wasn't expecting another album like that, but I wasn't also expecting, you know, a Phil Collins eating soul, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, until we kind of got with the second one, you know, lots of, uh, no quarter, lots of cheesy synth, and, you know, I, the third one that just came out is, is to me, just kind of off the ledge, and I, I understand that you want to just take it as, like, an interesting piece of art, but, um, I, uh, just not for me so you know a guy that just went totally and he indulged in things that you know didn't know existed in people's uh, music catalogs and, and plenty of other people uh, like it. I mean, it's not. It's not as if it's just. A, it's. I mean, I feel the same way about it. I, I um, you know, there are certain records, movies where you keep reading such positive um, takes on it, and you're like, I don't know that these people are listening to the same thing I'm listening to. Exactly. Um, you know, my ears. I give the guy complete credit for being a creative force. I just, uh, he'll, you know. Yeah. That's the one for me. It's a, yeah, it's it's a personal taste thing. I don't begrudge the guy for going in his own direction, but he, he left me behind when he went there. 
Um, well, here's my here's the last one, and I'm actually gonna I'm gonna say this will be the last uh, uh, section of this particular podcast because um, I think we're gonna take the sophomore surge and make it its own pod uh, a little bit later. But um, uh, my last category, my favorite um, category on the list, is done in by drugs. Um, bands that put out one great album and then just uh, completely collapsed under the weight of uh, addiction. Um, and not necessarily, uh, actually, no, most of these guys did, uh, full on collapse under the weight of it or just, yeah, I was, was going to say, these are these, uh, the ones that, that we talked about earlier were actually people I think who, you know, sort of took themselves to the brink of death and back, but there are, there are also examples I think of just sort of like smoking too much pot in college and not exactly, uh, not exactly putting out your best stuff on the second one. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a cross between, you know, wallowing in in the depths of of addiction and being too distracted by your own habit to to put out to bother to put out something else but just say there's a line between weed and crack and it's not as it's not that thin (laughs) but uh you know to kick this off i think um you know again i'm gonna read off the 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 album or the bands and the albums and and i'll let the discussion go where it goes, but uh, Lou Reed, uh, first solo album, phenomenal. Um, and there's a lot of people who are uh, fans of of his subsequent solo albums, but to me, it was a giant step off, um, you know, off a, off a ledge. Uh, Happy Mondays, um, and I will absolutely <laughs> say that they they fell under the. Uh, they dissolved under the weight of, of heavy, heavy drug use. Uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, I think the first album sounds like a vicious uh, piece of hard rock, and the second one sounds like uh, six years in a, in a uh, room uh, with, un, you know, with an um, unlimited supply of cocaine. Um, and The Laws, who I think literally just caved after one album, didn't they? Pack it in after one. Yeah, it was. Um, I think you know, like you can also say we can mix a little mental insanity in this. And uh, yeah, I think that guy had you know sounds in his head. Let's say. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was a uh, uh, hybrid in that case. Um, I also have Stone Roses on this list, who really didn't uh, collapse under the weight of drug use. Uh, did plenty of them, but um, they more collapsed under the under the weight of of uh, legal. Entanglements. So, um, you know, I love the. There's very few albums I love as much as I. I think the exception here might be Lou Reed because he's probably had to sober up and make Transformer. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that could be. Decided that was no fun, made a great album, and uh, went went off the wagon. The funny thing about Transformer to me, though, is I listened to it. And you know, yeah, like a drug sandwich album. Yeah, but I, but I, you know, it, it, it it's a Bowie collaboration, um, yeah. and I feel like it, it sounds like a Bowie album that he brought Lou Reed in to to sing on. Um, it is. I mean, he that's does his backing band on that album. Yeah, uh, Bowie. You know? Yeah, and he's. I mean, there, Bowie does a lot of backing vocals. It's you know, it's it's a funny it's a funny album. I I don't think it would be nearly as good without. You know, if Bowie wasn't no, involved, it would, be, it would be the rest of the reason. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like it would. I, I was, you know, there was there's times when I've, you know, really, you know, I love the Velvet Underground and I love a handful of Lou Reed solo stuff, but like there's times when he really swung and missed, and people 
want to, you know, maintain that it was intentional or part of the, you know, the sort of, you know, growth as an artist. And sometimes you just got to say, you know what, it's not me, it's him. It kind of sucks. As far as the Happy Mondays go, I loved the Happy Mondays. Um, but that was one of the few bands in real time where you're like, this is untenable. Like, these guys are just swallowing. I remember I had buddies that came over from England to go on tour with the Happy Mondays, and the tour was aborted because uh, they got kicked out of the country. But um, it was, uh, you I'm know... I'm sure one of many abortions on that tour. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It was, uh, it was just funny because, like, that was a band that you knew in real time was self-destructing, and it was it, that was all part of... It was all part of the fun. It was all part of the, you know, the sort of uh, entertainment. Occasionally, there's that band. I put Guns N' Roses on this list, too. We talked about it a minute, but the happy money said it's not an act. Yeah. You know, some, some people are out there being cool and, you know, doing drugs and partying. Like, these guys were, you know, <laughs> yeah, they just, they just yeah. think it's the most fun to do them. Yeah. They were drug addicts who <laughs> decided to pick up instruments. Yeah, exactly. This was a, this was a drug album. Uh, that 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 actually has some music on it. Uh, Happy Mondays. I mean, they were. I I I love that. Again, I'll say that I love the Happy Mondays. But the, you know, the other thing about the Happy Mondays is, um, and uh, <laughs> this is a band that didn't even pretend to have talent. Like <laughs> Sean Ryder was just up his own ass. He you know he knew he couldn't sing. Um, he you know there was just I, there was no there is absolutely nothing. Um, in that equation that says success, and yet they wound up killing it. They were great. Um, Stone Roses, on the other hand, first album. I was actually in England when that first album came out, and there is nothing uh, like there was nothing I'd ever seen like the resonance of that album. In an, I mean, they had at one point I think seven of the top ten songs in England. They were. Uh, you know that that album was such a juggernaut over there, and it really wasn't so much over here. But I love that sound. It was sort of a, um, you know, it sort of brought dance music to. It made English people dance. Put it that way. That was uh, Stone Roses' claim to fame, and sadly, uh, it took I think about eight years to put out their second album because they were in, in involved in a, a really nasty lawsuit. And by the time they got to it, much the same as De La Soul after being sued. Um, they just didn't have the energy in them. They had, a, and you know, I mean, that second album produced one great single, "Love Spreads," but the rest of it, you know, was sort of an afterthought. If they had been able to put together a second album on the heels of the singles they were putting out, following the first album, you know, um, "One Love" and "Fool's Gold," the extended version of "Fool's Gold" and things of that nature, where they'd really found their sort of, you know, polyrhythmic dance. Uh, groove and and you know uh, mixed it with with really good pop songs. It would I would really have loved to have heard what that album would have sounded like had they been able to put out a proper follow up in less than two years after the original came out. And then there's the Laws, who are uh, uh, Jeremy and I. Our sister uh, was the program director at NYU, and I remember her telling me a story or telling us a story about the Laws, which was that. They actually released "There She Goes," which is a very kind of a, thought to be a classic rock song, but was never a radio hit per se. Uh, I think it got more traction later out of soundtracks and things of that nature, um, commercials. commercials. And actually, I think there was a cover of it that was in uh, Romeo and Juliet or something like that. But um, 
she said that they released that. They were so sure that song was a hit and it never got any traction, but they actually released it as a single like six or seven times. Um, yeah, I think it was an accurate story, and it was one of those bands that I think when we had a you know summer vacation where we used to go in the summers and just it never left the tape deck no. of the car that entire summer. And, I uh, like the whole album too. I think that's what I'm saying. It's a great album. I mean, that song is amazing and obviously deserves all the credit it gets, but. I also read that the singer just, he was obsessed with sound and kind of a Brian Wilson type and just thought that album was horrible and couldn't, you know, one of those guys that just total studio file, had to have everything sound a certain way and kind of drove himself insane, refused to make another album. So there she goes. Yeah, that was, and that was the story of the laws as far as we know. Um, So anyway, I think we're going to wrap the sophomore slump uh, pod, but um, where I and like I said, this was originally gonna be a sophomore slump, sophomore uh, uh, jump, or sophomore surge. But I think we're gonna take sophomore surge and make it its own its own podcast because there's a lot of uh, great ones on there, and, and I want to give them their due time and credit. So um, I believe that's all for now. You guys got anything else? Nope. Look forward to doing the surge. All right. Surge Goodbye. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing, and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.